1: the podcast
0: welcome back everybody hello justin
1: how's it going Lindsay?
0: um you know honestly i've been really stressed out lately not that you know this isn't you know uh therapy time or anything but um i've had a lot of transition in my life i'm pretty stressed out yeah um so uh diving into a courtroom drama was kind of nice what about you justin
1: i myself have been feeling a little stress yeah i'm glad that we are still getting to do this but we've both had some big life changes have dealt with some loss yeah um it's been a go life has been a go but that hasn't uh stopped us from continuing to do what we love and that's talk about movies with each other yeah and uh you probably have noticed that we've lightened up our you know episodes aren't coming out um as much as they are, but we're still going to try to keep it to at least one episode a month. Yeah. You know, we're going to try to keep up with that.
0: I mean, we love doing this. It's not something that is stressful in the sense of like, oh, god, I got not get It's never that. <laughs> it's never that at all. It's more just like, it's more, oh, God, for everything else in yeah. life. And this is the, you know... The moment, the solace moment that it's, yeah. it's like I'm just working towards getting to working on podcast stuff.
1: And it gives me a reason, even if life gets really busy. Like, if we're doing a movie, I know that I'm like, gives me a reason to watch and analyze a movie and really yeah. sit down with it. Yeah. I'm glad we are doing the movie that we're doing, which is kind of a little bit of an unusual movie for us. Uh, we so. rarely have done very many dramas. And much less a courtroom drama.
0: Yeah. As as a main feature. As pick of the week, sure.
1: And we have never done a Tom Cruise movie that's like where he's the main.
0: Yeah. We've done Magnolia, but he was a supporting character.
1: This was a good pick. It's the 30th anniversary that was the catalyst for choosing Mm -hmm. this movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing about this movie, for me anyway, is that uh, a lot of the movies that we do I can't lie, you know, and I've talked about it before. I have nostalgia tied to them. This movie, I had zero nostalgia tied to. This was one that didn't appeal to me. This came out when I was a kid, and I just... I did like dramas when I was a kid, like Taxi Driver and stuff, but just didn't... Uh,
0: what was wrong with us? Me I, too. I but, why do, why but, do we watch that but heavy shit? drama,
1: I'm just like, <laughs> I don't want to see this. You know, this wasn't a movie that... I grew up on, and then I guess like maybe like five or six years ago, I had jury duty. And I'm that kind of weirdo that like I started downloading all of the courtroom dramas so that when I'm sitting in the room, I could just ironically watch a bunch of courtroom dramas. And then
0: someone watches you over their shoulder yeah, and, and they're, they're like, l- This they're guy, like, dismiss this guy. They're like Get an- him out of here.
1: Like you're an idiot. <laughs> uh, but A Few Good Men was one of the movies that I had on my phone, and I really enjoyed it. It was a much better movie than I had anticipated with Rob Reiner. This is our third. Rob Reiner movie and you really look at this
0: kind of no surprise moment in time.
1: Yeah. I mean, he really has had become like a prestige director. And this was, I think one of his like most mature movies. And honestly, I think probably one of Tom Cruise's best performances, you know, when I think about it, we'll get into some of that, but this was one, it's been great. It's been great to do this movie. It was, it was kind of nice to actually do a movie that wasn't as familiar with because a lot of the movies that we choose You know I probably watch once a year regardless of the podcast but this one gave me a good reason to like dig into this movie.
0: It had been easily since the early 90s since I had seen this movie so it was pretty much a fresh watch but courtroom dramas are something that I grew up with. I think I've said a zillion times in this podcast my mom like I watched every movie that she did whether or not it was appropriate for my age and whether it's Ivan Reitman's Legal Eagles or something as heavy as the awesome Jodie Foster, Kelly McGillis, The Accused in 88. I watched those as a kid and was really drawn to them. Why the hell were we, like, drawn to these movies as a kid? I don't, I don't understand. Um, and even in the 90s, The Client, always going to go to bat for that. Yeah. Um, ta- sitting there, watching HBO, taping The Pelican Brief. But A Few Good Men is something that out of all of those really does stand out. And I, and, you know, aside from the one-off kind of courtroom movies that came out of the eighties, a few good men, it does seem like it. I mean, maybe it was brewing there in the eighties, but this is what really kicked it in the high gear for all of the nineties courtroom dramas to follow.
1: Yeah, it really is kind of fascinating to see how many courtroom drama movies came out in the 90s. A few good men kind of kicking that off. You know, we did have the movie that we covered, um, which is a courtroom movie comedy, Mm -hmm. My Cousin Vinny. But this sort of searing courtroom like melodrama um, really did, you know, take a hold of the 90s. And we'll get into that. We'll talk about that. Um, Lots to talk about with A Few Good Men. I know we'll be spending an enormous amount of time on the cast. Just sort of a phenomenal everybody in this movie, regardless of how tiny bit of screen time that they have, are really putting in some beautiful performances. Also, this is a movie that uh, got its start by an unknown who now is considered to be like one of the best screenwriters in entertainment, uh, Aaron Sorkin. But uh, this was his humble beginnings, like writing the play, and then the screenplay for A Few Good Men.
0: And of course, after that, we will get into the adaptation of this. We will get into some production stories behind the scenes. And one thing that was fascinating to me, I didn't know this, and I guess it was because I was 10 maybe when this came out, or maybe it wasn't publicized, but there's a true story behind this movie. And a lot of times, you know, when you're, if you're reading about A Few Good Men, you'll hear a tiny bit of it. And we'll, we'll get into that, but there is so much more behind yeah. it that kind of blew my mind.
1: I did not realize any of that either.
0: It's wild, so stay tuned.
1: After A Few Good Men, you'll hear our picks of the week. Uh, this week, I did go with the Tom Cruise movie because we haven't uh, talked about Tom Cruise hardly at all in the four years we've been doing this podcast. And so I chose a movie because I had a... Um, I don't know. I'm feeling more emotional and uh, personal in this episode. I chose to go with The Last Samurai, which I'm sort of doing as a tribute to my grandmother. She uh, loved that movie. It was like she was not a person who like rewatched movies. She saw Last Samurai like five times. It was not a movie that I even like considered watching. And she's like, no, it's like I love that movie. And she was uh, from, you know, lived in Japan for like 30 years and really loved Tom Cruise and that movie and everything about it. So uh, rewatching that movie was, was bittersweet, and I'm really happy to... To, and, and, and it's a good movie. I'll talk about it. What was your pick of the week?
0: I can't wait to hear about that. I haven't seen that since I worked in video store. My pick of the week was a Jack Nicholson movie called The Last Detail. I hadn't seen it before. What an absolute gem. And I feel robbed yeah. that I haven't seen it before now. but wow i can't wait to talk about it
1: i thought i think this is one of your best picks that you've done when you said you're doing last detail i was like wow i mean what a great movie to pull out and uh you're right it is uh this sort of like hidden 70s gem that really doesn't get talked about
0: as much as it should and there's there's no way a movie like this would ever be made nowadays no but it is wonderful to watch still
1: Well, as usual, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. But before we get into our first clip from A Few Good Men, Lindsay, can you please tell us what is A Few Good Men about your interpretation? What happens in this movie?
0: When a Marine's death leads to charging two others in his company, one military lawyer, Lieutenant Commander Galloway, takes a special interest in the case. Believing that the officers were acting on orders, Galloway wants to take on the case herself and represent the two men accused of the murder. But when she's passed over, a lawyer known for taking the easy way out and making plea bargains, Lt. Caffey, is given the case instead. Refusing to let her interest in the case die, concerned that Caffey might not be the best choice to represent the defendants and thinking he'll miss important details, Galloway involves herself in Caffey's case, to his dismay and annoyance. After more details are revealed and a cover-up beginning to emerge, The defense team gets a taste of the accused men's base commander, Colonel Jessup. And Jessup's not one to suffer fools or think he's ever made a misstep. So poking around by the defense team stirs up even more hostility and doubling down on hiding an even larger conspiracy.
1: It sounds so much more uh, sinister, like there's all this stuff going on, which is true. Thank you for that. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's go to a clip, and we'll come back. We'll talk about A Few Good Men. All right. Colonel, I
2: just need a copy of Santiago's transfer order. What's that? Santiago's transfer You guys have paperwork on that kind of thing. I I just need it for the file.
3: For the file? Yeah. Of course, you can have a copy of the transfer order for the file, Danny. I'm here to help in any way I can. Thank you. You believe that, don't you, Danny, that I'm here to help you in any way I can? Of course. Corporal will take you by personnel on your way out to the flight line, and you can have all the transfer orders that you want. But you have to ask me nicely. I beg your pardon? You have to ask me nicely. You see, Danny, I can deal with the bullets and the bombs and the blood. I don't want money, and I don't want medals. What I do want is for you to stand there in that faggoty white uniform and with your Harvard mouth extend me some fucking courtesy. you got to ask me nicely. Colonel Jessup, if it's not too much trouble, I'd like a copy of the transfer order. Sir. No problem.
1: Now, I don't necessarily know if Aaron Sorkin, the name, is a household name. Uh, Certainly, people that follow entertainment, like movie buffs, will know his name. But if you don't know his name, um, you probably are familiar with a lot of the movies or television shows that he's written. And he's one of those few writers that kind of bounced between creating television shows that hit big and then... Writing movies, So he kind of like did one or the other throughout his career, um, but just to name check a few, uh, The American President was a movie that he wrote. He created the show Sports Night. He created the West Wing, which ran for like, I don't know how many seasons. He wrote Charlie Wilson's War. He wrote The Social Network. He wrote Moneyball. He created the show Newsroom, which was a big hit. He eventually started directing movies that he had written, um, including Molly's Game, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. And most recently, Being the Ricardos, which was nominated for a bunch of stuff. So many TV shows and movies that have uh, been beloved. And it's wild to think that this started out from a guy who claims he... Wasn't trying to become a writer. He didn't go to school to be a writer. He was uh, living with several people in New York in his twenties. Had a very, he said, he called it a lonely night in New York, where it seemed like everybody but him was uh, out having fun. And out of pure boredom, he said there was an old typewriter uh, sitting on the desk. This sounds like totally made up, but I mean, I'm, I, <laughs> this is what he says in an interview, yeah, yeah. and that he starts like pounding the keys and just writing, you know, off the top of his head and writes all night long and realizes that A, he really loves it, and B, maybe he has a knack for it, and then uh, essentially um, starts writing the play for A Few Good Men on bar napkins. He's bartending, and he's like... It, it just, uh, again, this sounds like stuff of like it Hollywood folklore. It really but does. He claims it's, it's real, and I kind of believe it. He doesn't yeah. seem like... He seems like a no-nonsense kind of guy if you listen to interviews yeah. with him.
0: Yeah, I love the visual whether it's true or not, of Sorkin coming home from work with all these napkins in his pockets with these notes of a few good men that he's going to sit down at the typewriter, which he's bought with all of his housemates, and like he's going to bang out this story. I don't care if it's true. I love the visual of this. It's just great. And this wasn't his first rodeo, either. He had, um, in, in 1984, he wrote his first play called Removing All Doubt, and that would be performed at his alma mater, Syracuse University, and in 88 he also would write uh, hidden in this picture that would debut off-broadway so he does have um, this knack for creating stories but where did a few good men come from i'm not going to completely give him all 100 percent credit for this because it was his sister deborah sorkin and she was the original source for what would be the story of a few good men So she had graduated from Boston University Law School and told her brother, you'll never guess where I'm going tomorrow. And she tells Aaron about this uh, case in Guantanamo Bay involving a group of Marines who were being defended for nearly killing another Marine in a... I mean, this is basically the beginning of the movie, for hazing this other Marine um, as they were ordered by their superior. This is before the opening credits of A Few Good Men, this is exactly what happens. And she tells him this. And to her, it also seemed like the Marines were kind of going out of their way to assign junior counsel to defend and experience counsel to go for the prosecution. So Sorkin's writing brain takes over and he knows if he's going to make this story into a movie, he knows a couple things. One, Definitely, the government's going to be set up to thwart the defense. That That is the story. That the victim needs to be dead before the opening credits, which is what we see in the movie. And three, that this story needs to be about the lawyers involved versus just the actual act, what happens um, in the beginning of the movie. It needs to be about these lawyers who are in over their heads. In addition... To uh, adding more depth to this, this is going to be a character piece about a young lawyer who's coming out from under the shadow of his father. So adding a lot of uh, fictional aspects to the story, but taking in this giant um, true aspect. And it is this fictional aspect of this younger lawyer living in the shadow of his successful lawyer father who has since passed, um, which is what eventually would draw Rob Reiner, to being involved with the story. We'll get to that in a second.
1: This story, this court case, is a great way to open a story because you just immediately have conflict. Someone was done wrong, and there's a problem that needs to be solved. Like, what a way to just, like, launch a, a story and then start, you know, connecting all the dots, which that's the other thing. It's one thing to get an idea from somebody and say, like, oh, man, that make a great movie, and then sit down and start writing it. But you need more than just the that one idea, and that's where Sorkin really, you know, his own creative process of, like, adding depth and adding themes and adding, you know, like you said, the Tom Cruise character living in his father's shadow. Like, all these elements that, like, really made for, like, a, a nice, well-rounded...
0: And in some courtroom dramas to come after this one, that's where you know, the plot kind of falls thin is where you do rely upon this one instance, this one thing that happens, the actual crime. And with this movie, it kind of expands beyond that where, yes, that is the center of this movie, the entire reason we're watching it, but the world beyond it is m- much richer and thus making the end and and resolution to this case that much more fulfilling. Yeah.
1: So, Lindsay, let's... Uh for just a brief moment, transition from a movie <laughs> podcast to a true crime podcast. <laughs> and Because the, the the true story of what went down, the, the case, is way creepier and more demented than what yeah. the case is in A Few Good Men. What what really went down? I know you're going to get to more stuff on it uh, later in the podcast, yeah, but just should- briefly...
0: We should do it in two parts because um, we haven't really gotten into talking about A Few Good Men and the developing of it. Um, So we're going to save the latter half of the true story till the release and reception of this movie. But to kind of bounce off the original inspiration, Deborah Sorkin, you know, the way that Aaron Sorkin tells it is like this just cursory thing that she tells him about. But I think... From what I can tell, it's it's a lot more involved. So as the story goes, um, this Marine, David Cox, uh, who was in the Corps from 85 to 89, is the person who we're going to focus most on in talking about this true story. Most likely, we're going to bring up uh, something that comes up in this movie called The Code Red. If you're unfamiliar with what A Code Red is, in, I don't know if it's just the Marines or if it's in all military, Justin. Did you get any sense of that?
1: I couldn't get a sense of it, but I think I think it sounds like a military term. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, in a sense, it is just- Well, actually,
1: I take that back because McCaffrey didn't know what a Code Red was. Oh, Did he true. not?
0: He's kind of like- It was kind of fuzzy. White collar, though, yeah, Marine that's a little bit. He might not have- No one's going to invite Caffey, Tom no. Cruise's character, to a Code Red. No, no one's ever going to do that. So it makes sense. He wouldn't know. But what a code red is when one Marine is acting out a line, is maybe not shaping up as much as the rest of his corps, um, that it's an unofficial thing that a, a group of other Marines will do some sort of hazing ritual, whatever that manifests into. Sometimes it's more aggressive. Sometimes it's more of a prank. Any way you slice it, it's aggressive. In this particular true story, just to kind of uh, set you up for plot points in A Few Good Men, David Cox, um, he was originally assigned as a guard along the Guantanamo Bay perimeter, uh, which separated the base from Cuba. He also belonged to a group within the Corps uh, called the Ten, and this is, it kind of sounds like the popular kids in high school is what I was imagining while reading it, which is You know, these guys who are completing insane challenges like running in full gear in 110 degree heat and hanging from a tower like 60 feet up just by one hand for a minute. You know, like really challenging yourself, I guess. Something I would never do. I don't want to do that kind of challenge anyway. But these guys were um, the elite, I guess you could say. So in this particular Code Red incident... Private First Class William Alvarado wrote letters to a Texas congressman complaining about the poor conditions at Guantanamo and illegal activities that were happening there involving Marines who were firing shots across the fence line into Cuba. This is what happens in A Few Good Men, or I mean, we don't see this, but this is also what the victim in A Few Good Men does. He requests a transfer from the base and when this information reaches the higher-up commanding officer, um, he decides that Alvarado is not going to be transferred despite the private's concern about being harmed or somehow maligned while being in the Corps. So as we can see, this is, if you know the story of A Few Good Men, especially the lead-up, this is pretty much following beat for beat what is happening in the movie. And in September '86. These Marines, the 10, were allegedly encouraged by this colonel uh, to perform a Code Red unofficially. And at one thirty a.m., they entered Alvarado's room, restrained him while he was sleeping, bound his body with tape, stuffed a pillowcase in his mouth, and blindfolded him, assaulted him, dragged him out of his room. And ultimately, the plan was to shave Alvarado's head as punishment for speaking out against things that were happening in, in the Corps and just basically talking behind his bro's back. Well, as this was happening, Alvarado began choking, and his lungs began filling with fluid. He was spitting up blood, and he began turning purple and lost consciousness. At that point, the code red was immediately stopped, and the Marines called for help. Alvarado went to the infirmary and was transferred to a Miami hospital, but he went on to make a full recovery. This man did not die. What happens in A Few Good Men he dies. He totally dies. This is the uh, reason for everything to follow in the movie. The 10 that were involved in this admitted guilt and they were arrested. And that, again, that's what happens in this too. So um, it is interesting to me that for dramatic purposes, we, I mean, it is way more dramatic to, to kill the guy than let him live, right? So in a sense, you know, Everything, every movie, every story, everything is inspired by something, Um, but to take it and dramatize it and make it to where this guy dies and he didn't really die in real life, you know, is it, does it reflect poorly upon the people that were involved in this hazing ritual? Is this something that, you know, those people in real life need to be concerned with? Um, But this will come into play when the movie is later released.
1: And I can only imagine that, I mean, Sorkin was in his 20s when he wrote this Mm -hmm. and probably not thinking, A, that this was going to be a big Broadway hit and that B, (laughs) it would get uh, it would be made into like a blockbuster movie. And, you know, when you're younger, you don't really think
0: about the repercussions of anything.
1: Yeah. Repercussions of anything or like how that, you know, oh, I'm just going to take this story of this real life thing. And like, is it going to affect the real life people that are out there? You know, or make other, you know, their families or whatever, like once the story gets like told and turned around and, you know, there there's a million uh, post movie lawsuit type stories like this out there. It did make for a great film. And I think the premise itself is intriguing. And uh, like you said, yeah, I mean, having the guy die is that's what's going to kick things off and make the story seem much more heavyweighted and great idea for him to add this element of the Jack Nicholson character, where it's like this David and Goliath story of Tom Cruise, you know, battling this like elite military uh, personnel who like, this is the way things are done here. Like you don't understand. And, but in a way that uh, feels like a story that is um pretty broad, you know, I don't feel like this is a movie that um takes a lot of like political angles. I don't feel like it's a movie that's like overly patriotic where no. a lot of yeah. times movies where the the military's involved, it can sometimes the uh, the patriotism can like really overshadow like any of the depth or like story that's in the movie. And I feel like this movie kind of shies away from that. You know, it certainly does like take you into Uh, aspect of the military like with these code reds and like this sort of um, stand by the code of like the military and like you know we look out for each other and civilians don't understand but it never gets too um, like heavy-handed
0: yeah I have to say I mean at least for myself that when it gets to the degree of patriotism or how this movie shies away from it it's more about displaying what the vibe is as far as being in the Marine Corps as someone who's not a Marine or doesn't um, have any family members in the Marines. Seeing the degree of patriotism is a little terrifying. I think w- what's said in this movie is uh, the uh, hierarchy of what's important is unit corps, god, country. Okay. And I,
1: I like that we're... Um, yeah, it's
0: absolutely it, terrifying. It's, and it's...
1: uh. <laughs> And we're introduced to that through Tom Cruise's Caffey character, who, when he first interviews these two Marines, they're kind of laying it out for him, like you don't understand the ones that are accused yeah. of, of killing this guy. And you know, Caffey's in the Navy, but there's you know, we we see immediately that they're the the Marines take themselves to to a higher standard. They're much more in tune with like this is how we live like this is how we survive is by this is your code and you stand by it doesn't matter what happens
0: these navy boys over here just don't
1: even get it and and so we're we're looking at these guys through tom cruise's character's eyes and you know and it is right away you're like whoa this is intense you know these guys are living by some pretty crazy guidelines and it just kind of gets a little bit crazier as as the movie progresses
0: And for this movie, it is that code, which is what has kept them from pleading guilty, because to them, this is what they're supposed to do as Marines. And in a way, the the moral dilemma that this movie poses um, is pretty fascinating in that sense.
1: No, I totally agree, because you are, it's building and building, and you're like all about these guys committed this crime, this is totally messed up, and by the end of the movie, you know, we we're, were sympathetic to these two soldiers. Even though they committed this crime, they were, quote-unquote, following orders. But you get the real depth of, like, them still not even really understanding uh, what they did and why it was wrong, which makes the movie even more...
0: Kind of disturbing. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
0: <laughs> all right, so by 1988, Sorkin's got all of his cocktail napkins sorted into a fully formed play. But before the play even opens... The film rights are sold to producer David Brown for a six-figure sum. Now, this producer had gotten the play sent to him by Sorkin's agent at the time, and David Brown had also read this New York Times article about Sorkin's one-act play I previously mentioned hidden in this picture, and he had also heard about a few readings of A Few Good Men. So, Brown seizes this opportunity, and in 89... He produces A Few Good Men on Broadway. It runs for close to 500 performances, but his goal the entire time was to get A Few Good Men to the big screen. He had an already established relationship with Tristar, having previously financed projects, so he approached them about the movie. Tristar shoots him down because there wasn't any star power attached to the story at the time which is completely ironic because i mean what this movie would be it's like star after star you can't sling a dead cat without hitting a celebrity in this movie so in 1990 the industry buzz begins variety announces that a few good men is going to be financed castle rock entertainment rob reiner basically rob reiner Um, finds out about A Few Good Men on Broadway, and after receiving it as a, a writing sample, Reiner goes to watch it on Broadway, absolutely loves it, and starts trying to hound this out, tries to acquire this movie because Castle Rock wants it.
1: And now we've talked about Rob Reiner multiple times on this podcast. We've done two of his movies
0: kind of love the dude, really. Yeah,
1: and... I love
0: his Twitter feed and, like, it, now. Just
1: as a refresher <laughs> of where Rob Reiner was coming from when he was trying to get a hold of A Few Good Men to direct. Started out as an actor, but then had just this enormous run here in the 80s of just one hit after another, um, starting with This Is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing. In 1986, he does Stand By Me, which we covered on an episode. Follows that up the next year with The Princess Bride, which is, you know, a classic. Two Years Later does When Harry Met Sally, which is considered a romantic comedy staple. Um, Then in 1990 does Misery, which we also covered on the podcast. One enormous hit after another. So really the perfect director, um, someone who is going to handle a story that's very character-driven. And as we've talked about on these other episodes about Rob Reiner, he is an actor's director. He came from an acting background. It's hard to find an actor who's been interviewed talking about Rob Reiner in any sort of bad way. The only thing they talk about is like how liberating it is to have an actor directing you that kind of, you know, knows the process, knows where you're coming from, is willing to let you take some chances and, and also push you in the right directions. So word is out about Hollywood and Rob Reiner wanting to turn the play A Few Good Men into a motion picture. As luck would have it for Sorkin, they want Sorkin to adapt the screenplay. I don't know that that's always the case, where Hollywood's going to snag the original writer who doesn't have much experience and who's never written a screenplay in their life. And Sorkin said to his surprise, he didn't even know how to write a screenplay. He said he went out and like bought a book, and he said he got so wrapped up on learning like the indentions and how to like the formatting of the script that he said he burned up like you know weeks and weeks. And he said finally, uh, William Goldman, uh, a famous screenwriter said, Hey, just write the movie. Don't mess with format. There's people that will like take care of all that later on. He's like, just get the story out, get the characters out, get the dialogue out. And so he said, after um, he got that advice, he was freed to just write the movie and sat down and started shaping the movie and taking it from a stage play to a flowing motion picture which I didn't know much about this movie I kind of like when we would decide to pick it I didn't even know that this was originally a play
0: I didn't and either. when
1: I watched I watched the movie first before I like kind of started doing any research I like to do that especially with, if we're doing a movie that I didn't kind of going in blind yeah and watching the movie, I would have not thought that this was a play. I mean, there's plenty of other movies like we did Still Magnolias. Sure. Where it's yeah. like you watch the movie and you're like, oh, I wonder if this was a play because it's very kind of confined. still and confined. Yeah. And this was a movie that didn't really feel that way. And I almost feel like this uh, like Sorkin does have this ability, um, especially how easily he switches from like movies to television to plays, the ability to kind of sense. Where the energy should be and how to translate things um, for different mediums and yeah the the way that the story is structured and the way that things play out feels much bigger even in the courtroom scenes where you are confined to one area even those seem to flow and you know a lot of credit due to Rob Reiner in the way that he directed the movie and, and staged things but you know a lot of that starts with the screenplay and and Sorkin really it was great that he was able to adapt his own work.
0: And with the help of William Goldman and Rob Reiner, Sorkin used their guidance to finish out the script. Sorkin would say that Reiner, uh, he'd give him major credit for helping plug a lot of plot holes. So since Sorkin had spent nearly, you know, the previous year watching this play performed, he saw the things that weren't working as a play. And Reiner helped him figure out what was not going to transfer from a play to the screen. And also when you have a play... It's very confined, like you were just saying. And sometimes, it depends on what the movie is. Like, there's some movies, like, Clue's a great example. That, how it is as a play, it's going to transfer perfectly over to a movie. But you also have to have action. And this movie needed a kick of action. Not, you know fight scenes or something like that, but you needed to have interesting visuals. You needed to have interesting setups, drama, and there needed to be new scenes that were written and inserted into the film that weren't in the play. And a lot of these scenes were integrated into the play version of A Few Good Men, which I think says a lot about Sorkin's ability to be critical of his own writing which is pretty cool I think of a writer to not say no this is exactly how it is and nothing can change but to take your film adaptations and go this is going to work actually in the play too and make it even spicier
1: and Reiner does a great job I think in in many scenes where he keeps the action moving not necessarily like the camera's like flying through the hallways. But, you know, as far as like staging characters and blocking and having Tom Cruise enters, he's, he's he's walking with Kevin Bacon and he's talking about an issue. And then Kevin Bacon's in a hurry and he's like, I got to get out of here. And then Tom Cruise walks out of the building and then we cut to the outside and then, Demi Moore is waiting there for him and then they have a conversation. They're walking to Tom Cruise's car and then he's like, I gotta get out of here. And then he gets in his car and, and then he drives off off screen. There's just the he really keeps the dialogue moving and the characters walking and talking. And it really does like, you know, again, like, like you said, not action is in fight scenes, but like movement.
0: And I think for the action that we're talking about here, it's not as noticeable, say, as an action movie. But when you watch it from this standpoint and you watch how it's staged and you think about how you're sucked into the story and how it is like, very engaging... I mean that's that's all coming from Rob Reiner and the way that they've decided to stage all of these things. You know, Reiner does do a lot of kind of old school like tricks. There's one um, one montage that he talks about uh, in the commentary which is so basic in, in a lot of ways, but it's really cool when you just take that scene by itself and think about what's happening. So, there um, it's this scene where Demi Moore, Tom Cruise, and Kevin Pollock, who are defending these Marines in this case. It's like
1: they're thinking about the case <laughs> montage. It's a thinking montage.
0: It's, I mean, yeah. thinking montage that sounds hella boring. But what happens is we need to see the passage of time and that they're working really hard. They're changing clothes. They're eating different types of takeout every night. But Reiner stages it with the same frame from outside the house that they're doing this in and it's a slow pan in through through an outside window and the lighting's changing the clothes and the characters are changing the entire time the frame is not and it's so simple but it creates so much depth to the story and I mean it it, to me something like that and like the action that we're talking about yeah. is easy to miss, how thoughtful it is. You know, montages,
1: I, I think in the 80s, obviously they kind of got out of hand In You hold and your tongue, young man. I, I, I love a montage, <laughs> Don't, just let me finish, I love a montage. Um, but I think with the 90s, they got a little bit more refined in that the reasons for doing a montage was in this movie in this movie's case was to um condense time you yes. know because with yeah. a court case in reality court cases can drag out for like three years you know so no if they're one wants like, to watch that snooze you know, fest fe- february and they're like you know and we're not going to go to trial till november we can't sh- you know, oh, show that many months. So it's like it's you can do this montage and condense time versus what I was referring to with 80s <laughs> stuff where it was just like, hey, we've got to like, uh, you know, clean this house. And then there's like a four yeah. minute montage <laughs> of them, like people scrubbing floors and like, you know, mopping. Yeah. But what's great about condensing the time in this montage is when we come out of it, the audience has this clear distinction of. Tom Cruise has his team now. They, like, have some confidence in him. You know, it's him, Demi Moore, Kevin Pollack. And they have their team, and they're going up against what this movie has been building toward is the Jessup character played by Jack Nicholson. All the while, like, packing this movie full of themes of, like, you know, what it means to be a man, machoism. You know, Tom Cruise having issues with his father and, like, living up to his birthrights. In the meanwhile peppering the movie with enough humor which I think you know we'll talk about with Kevin Pollock. a proper amount of Kevin Pollock in the movie can go a little or a long way even and, with Tom Cruise yeah even with Tom Cruise and I think everybody's playing it just enough in this movie and um,
0: the humor is completely unexpected yeah, to yeah. me I forgot about that element of this movie and
1: but ultimately I think what this movie is leading toward is like this gigantic larger-than-life character of Colonel Jessup played by Jack Nicholson. You know, the the big whole thing is, is like, will Tom Cruise be man enough to put Jessup on the stand? Will he have that courage to do so? And we're all, like, hoping that he does. And when that moment comes, we kind of go into this third act, which is the sort of Rocky-esque part of the movie where... Um, The stakes are really high now and we've shown um, Jessup kind of pounce on Tom Cruise's character several times, like, you know, emasculate him and now they're going to go head to head. And that's where, I mean, everybody in this movie, like, I I feel like it's this pitch perfect cast and we'll stop here, we'll come back, we'll go to another clip and we'll uh, get into the cast because, um, I don't know, this is one of those movies where it's just like this perfect ensemble. If Lieutenant Kendrick gave an order, that Santiago wasn't to be touched. And why did he have to be transferred?
2: Colonel, Lieutenant Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Lieutenant Kendrick to do. Object! And when it went bad, you cut these guys loose! Your Honor, you had margins inside a bony transfer. Your Honor, you doctored the logbook. Damn it, Captain! You coerced the doctor. Consider yourself in contempt. Colonel Jessup. did you order the code red? You don't have to answer that question. I'll answer the question. Did you order the code red? I did the job. Did, did you see? order the code red? You're goddamn right I did!
1: So we'll start off big here um, with Tom Cruise. And a lot of baggage comes with Tom Cruise, and we won't get into a lot of that. But I'll say up front here that I'm I'm a big Tom Cruise fan. I think he's an excellent actor. I think that he's one of those actors who, just in his filmography alone, has like been in so many classic movies, but also has found a way to stay relevant, especially this era of Tom Cruise where he was doing the hotshot, cocky roles like Color Money and Top Gun and Days of Thunder. But he figured out a way to do these kind of hit commercial movies, but then also work with really influential great directors like Scorsese and Spielberg and Ridley Scott. And Brian De Palma and so he's either working with great directors or he's starting a franchise he's done a really great job of like I'm gonna do the big action movie and then I'm gonna do like a more important film less and less nowadays in the last 20 years he's kind of become like our generations Jackie Chan where it's like all about like the story of him like doing all these stunts for the Mission Impossible (laughs) movies and um, but as we record this podcast Tom Cruise Uh, after 40 years of, like, making movies, um, has, like, the number one hit of the entire year with Maverick. It's kind of crazy, you know, that he's, like, maintained this level of stardom for decades. And this movie, I think, is a really interesting um, moment in his career because he's much like his character, Caffey, who starts off like a hotshot brat, essentially becomes a man, grows a little bit more mature, and I think that's sort of the case with Tom Cruise's career right here, like the middle of his career where, you know, he's coming off of more prestigious movies like born on the 4th of July, but then gets risky. Even though he does mission impossible, a few movies after a few good men, he goes on to do in the same year, puts out Magnolia and eyes wide shut, both pretty risky roles and really out of character for him. And I think the nineties are where we really see Tom Cruise um, flexing his acting chops. And, You know, I hear a lot of people back, you know, it's like if you put it just putting aside like his religion or anything, I hear I always see people bash like he's a terrible actor. And I just I don't get that. I mean, I can get I totally get like certain aspects of Tom Cruise are like very reused, you know, like he pivots on certain things. I'm not saying he's like the greatest actor in the world. I mean, the scene of him anytime he plays drunk is like ridiculous like him playing drunk in this movie and jerry oh, <laughs> are pr- pretty pretty rough but i think for the most part he always embodies this character that at first you're kind of like really put off i really think he plays a good scumbag i mean i just want to throw a punch him when he's eating the apple in front of demi moore really embodies this like Cocky, know-it-all, dismissive of other people. Oh, it's yeah. it's terrible. But he somehow you you come around. Like you, you you hate him in the beginning, and then by the end of the movie, you're rooting for him. And I think that's like a really difficult transition to make. You know, is making a character like come alive on screen and like having people rally behind you. And he does it time and time again. Just like I mean, again, the movie that just came out, Maverick. Like by the end of the movie, hoping he doesn't die, and you're like cheering him on with everybody else.
0: I do think that he is an idealized version of a prick. This guy is, I mean, sure, he's got kind of youth on his side, but I mean, he's just younger, you know, he's not like he's totally green or anything. But I think this type of guy or this guy in real life, Caffey, I don't know if he would have as much depth or I would come around to caring about him. But I think that's the magic of movies, really, Um, that... That guy, I don't believe he exists in the world, and that's fine. I think Tom Cruise plays it perfectly, and I and like you, I'm totally with him at the end when he is nailing Nicholson to the wall. It's, I mean, like I I want it to happen, and I'm kind of scared for him at the same time.
1: And if you're somebody that like is really into like character arcs in movies, this is it. You know, you this see is a total a, yeah, character study. I mean, this is yeah. where you you know see a character totally go from like inexperienced to you know, conquering this huge case and, like, winning and, like, being the hero.
0: And, Justin, I'm with you on on Tom Cruise as an actor. I think he's incredibly gifted. I really do like pretty much every movie he's in. I've gone on and on to you about how much I like Eyes Wide Shut. And across the board for A Few Good Men, everybody had a lot of praises to sing for him. Like, Reiner loved working with him and thought he was just, like, really professional, professional totally funny, had a lot of enthusiasm. Kevin Bacon said the same thing and that his demeanor was really infectious. Kiefer Sutherland said that their scenes together really brought out uh, great performances from him. And that is something that I've heard about Tom Cruise through pretty much every movie he's been on, that he is always super enthusiastic and, and right there and willing to go the extra mile. Um, Even down to one thing we kind of touched on before with Rob Reiner being the actor's director, somebody coming from the world of acting, that Tom Cruise wasn't afraid to say, hey, Rob, I don't know how to say this line. How do you want me to say it? Just do it for me and I will do it. And that's uh, there's there's a line where Kathy is very annoyed and uh doesn't really have a good uh comeback for kevin bacon in a scene and he says you're a fucking lousy softball player like it's a terrible moment for his character but um i can actually understand how you wouldn't know how to say that because it's an uncomfortable moment so tom cruise as an actor going to your director and saying look, I'm I'm coming to you. You tell me how to do it. And he did the same thing for the drunk scene too. Reiner kind of laid it out how he wanted this manic behavior mixed with humor and just kind of a guy at the end of his rope, but at the same time conflicted. And there's a lot of emotions going on in that drunk scene. And I know how you feel about it. And I don't know, I guess it's because I do like Tom Cruise, even when he's drunk in Jerry Maguire there is something that is charming about the dude, even when yeah. I feel like he's never had a drop of alcohol in his life. I do think that he's a great actor, and I, I think that he does shine in this movie.
1: And he was already getting like hefty paychecks. Like he got paid twelve and a half million for a few good men. Though that's that's very very um, impressive. Uh, I think more impressive is uh, Jack Nicholson who Jack Nicholson's in the Guinness Book of World Records or he was for a while for like making the most money for playing the Joker and Batman. I think like after back end deals or something it was something like crazy like 50 million dollars, but he uh, famously was paid 5 million for 10 shooting days of a few good men. So he he said it worked out to where he was getting half a million dollars a day.
0: I just want to stand up and, like, applaud him. Like, dude, way to go. You're getting half a million a day
1: to uh, come out. And not only that, uh, everybody at this point in time. I think Jack Nicholson is all around. Most actors, like, respect him, and they think he's, like, one of the greats. But especially during the time of A Few Good Men, even Tom Cruise was, like, not intimidated, but, you know, felt the weight of, like, we have, like, this legendary actor in our midst. Like, let's all our best
0: there were so many of the actors that said at their first table read when nicholson came out with his first line or his first scene that it was this kind of cooling sense of like oh my god he's elevating us right now just with his first line in this and everybody kind of felt not that it legitimized the movie but just that everyone automatically thought okay i gotta bring my a-game for this because i'm i'm with that i'm acting with that guy
1: You know, I was kind of down on Jack Nicholson for a while. I've mentioned to you this before. I love the movie The Departed, but I've just always have felt that Jack Nicholson was like horribly miscast in that movie. I just don't find him scary in that movie. I just, Mm -hmm. you know.
0: He's terrifying in this. Yeah, and (laughs) and that's
1: the thing is like, I think combined with that and just like years of like people doing Jack Nicholson impressions and stuff, he's not in a lot of movies that, that I like throw on routinely. So I hadn't really seen, other than like The Shining and stuff, you know, I was curious how I was gonna feel about this because, like I said, it had been—I don't know that I'd ever really like sat through this entire movie, but I've heard the "you can't handle the truth" like a million oh, yeah. times in pop culture growing up. Man, watching this movie, just that first scene at Guantanamo where they face off with Jack Nicholson—he's like immediately kind of being like cordial, but then he kind of rips on. Oh, you mean the first uh, scene the with me
0: and Tom Cruise?
1: Yeah. Or, oh. well, but when he first meets Tom Cruise and he kind of like is, yeah, finds yeah. out who Tom Cruise's father is. And then, you know, yeah. it's kind of ripping on him a little bit. And he's like, How is your old man? You know, and Tom Cruise is like, Oh, he's dead. And Jack Nicholson's like, Don't I feel like the asshole? But like this intensity. And then, uh, yeah, like when they face off and they're like having lunch, man. He just, it's its a really scary, terrifying performance. It's the, his kind of portrayal in this movie where I really feel like the stakes are high. It's like, dang, really, you're going to put this guy in the stand? Not, not just giving you know the the character stature and like where he ranks in the military and everything but just his demeanor and like his menacing tone and like his way to almost in like a Hannibal Lecter type performance way where he's able to push buttons and like really like cut people down the size and like make them feel small
0: even in his first scene with Kiefer Sutherland and JT Walsh that moment we realize you don't mess with this guy this isn't going to be um, someone who is going to play by anybody else's rules. And whatever he's going to say, in a sense, you're going to automatically feel like, well, I have to do that. I don't have a choice.
1: And since watching this movie, I kind of got on a a Jack Nicholson kick and I watched several Nicholson movies, uh, including The Pledge, which I had oh, never yeah. seen. And wow. I mean, talk about just a powerhouse performance where it's like the whole movie is like on Jack Nicholson's shoulders and... I think one of his best roles that I've seen him in, but a few good men, I can understand why this movie is so quoted and why that scene is so reused. You know, when anytime they do some sort of montage of like movie scenes, you know, in history, and then they'll do the, you want answers, you know, and they just have them square off and it's a big scene and it deserves all the accolades that it gets. And finally with Jack Nicholson, it would be uh, silly to not mention this because just about every actor that was interviewed for, a few good men that I could find in some of this documentary stuff. They all mentioned the same story with Jack Nicholson and that he famously, when he was doing that big speech with the, you can't handle the truth. Uh, generally they're only get, he'll he's only going to go a hundred percent whenever the cameras are on him, you know, because they had to go through the scene a bunch of times so that they could get reactions, everybody and the other actors are talking. And apparently he just, uh, they hadn't shot his stuff yet, so he was giving 100%, like, shouting and, and performing, even though he wasn't even on camera. And finally, Rob Reiner was like, hey, you know, like, leave a little gas in the tank. Don't, like, use up everything you have. And he's like, oh, no, I'm fine. He was like, I love, he, he was basically like, I love acting. This is amazing. So they were all kind of surprised that someone who, you know, they, they said it's not, it wouldn't have been shocking if he's, like, a new actor and he's, like, wanting to impress everybody, but for someone who's, like had been around for like 40 years, is still like, I'm going to give it my all whether the cameras are rolling on me or not. Pretty incredible and respectful.
0: That just further emphasizes that everybody around him was like, I got to really bring my A game. I'm that guy, that guy, I'm working with him. I got to compete with him in a scene. I do think that while Nicholson is an overwhelming presence in this movie, to me, Demi Moore is second billing. I think that she, her character gets crapped on a little bit too much but i mean it's it's kind of necessary for the environment that she's going to be in i also heard something like she took a pay cut for this movie too which you were coming off of ghost which is one of now now granted like i think the argument i heard was like well she did the butcher's wife which wasn't that great and nothing but trouble but she wasn't a box office guarantee i'm like are you serious i mean she did ghost dude like two years ago she shouldn't be taking a pay cut for yeah. anything. I don't know if that's true. It was just something I heard. But Demi Moore's performance in this is pretty top notch for, for her canon of work. And going right along with her performance being strong, her character is someone that forces the story along. She forces Tom Cruise's character to... Be a better person, to be a better lawyer. And she is constantly the one who's the most caring. She's caring from the beginning. She gets the shaft in the beginning because she wants to represent these Marines and is basically not given that because she is experienced and a woman. I don't think that that's actually said, but it's kind of understood. It's pretty telling when you are maybe the strongest, most respectable character in the film. And you bring your A game to this movie as an actor, and you're still auditioning for it. I think even Kevin Bacon said there was an interview with him, and he's like, "I just, uh, I just didn't see Demi Moore in this movie. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe I'm taking it too personally because she's a woman, but
1: he didn't see her. What do you mean?
0: He said I just didn't see her in such a commanding role oh, like I got this. You. I'm like, are you serious? I know that before she'd been in a lot of romance movies, but it doesn't mean that she can't be a commanding actor. And to me, having her in this movie is kind of a no-brainer. She's yeah. kind of a ball buster. I've always thought of that. Even in Ghost, that's a genre blender of, I mean, romance-based. But still, like, such a strong performance in that movie, too.
1: Wayne, when I was watching this movie, my first thought was, geez, this is like, no one have an ounce of humanity about the fact that this person, this, the soldier's like dead. Yeah. You know, that he was like, essentially she's the only murdered. one that cares. Yeah, And she's, <laughs> she's the only one that has like kind of is coming at it with like compassion and logic. And then, you know, toward the end of the movie is the one who's like hoisting up Tom Cruise's character and reassuring him that he is a good lawyer. It's her character that like basically drives, like you said, drives the movie.
0: There's one writing aspect, and hey, I'm not trying to say Aaron Sorkin had a mistake in his character development here, but I do think that, well, I guess I am saying that. There's a a part in this where she's prepping one of the Marines to testify and neglects to get out of him, that he never actually heard that this code red was something that they were ordered to do, that he was taking his co-Marine's word for it there's just zero part of me that thinks that that character wouldn't have figured that out or wouldn't have asked that question and it's going hand in hand with i i think that her character gets shit on a little bit too much in this movie that yeah it, it just doesn't uh, doesn't gel completely too well
1: where i think sorkin makes up for it a little bit is it you know we're talking early 90s a female oh, lead no. character yes who i'm totally with does you on that. not fall into a romance with yes. her yes. essentially you know co-worker which you know in any other movie in the 90s you know and 80s for that matter if it was a, a woman and she's in the workplace that, that she's gotta she's gotta fall in love there's got to be like a romance and this movie is absent of that I think the studio is pushing for them to go in that direction and I'm glad that they didn't because it is refreshing. And I think that you, you, could, you could totally see where it would have slowed the movie down. I like it because it keeps the movie feeling professional. Like, they're not worried about getting involved with each other because what's important to them is the case. And it doesn't get put on the sidelines so that they can have some sort of, like, romantic entanglement. It feels very, like, realistic to me of, like, people who have drive. And, like, what they want to do is, like, focus all their time and energy on trying to get to the bottom of this case
0: and even when Cruz's character is still in his immature phase he's all cocky after they've had like a good night of getting the case together and Demi Moore turns around to say basically and one more thing and he goes you don't even have to say it you you're taken by me blah 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 you want to kind of date me or whatever he says and she's like actually that's not at all what I was gonna say I was just gonna say don't forget this tomorrow That, I think, was uh, definitely to her credit and to Aaron Sorkin's writing credit, too.
1: They do add one shot of her looking longingly in his eyes while rain's pouring down on her face. They're, like, just standing in the rain.
0: Is that right after he just told her to F off, basically, when he's drunk? (laughs) She's probably like, am I really going to do this? Am I going to give you another chance to, like, I want to kind of get out of here. Like I said before, it had been a second since I've seen this, and I couldn't remember if that happened. And every time it felt like, is something going to happen? I'm like, please don't, please don't, please don't kiss, please. I'm so happy they don't.
1: Yeah. I knew the cast section of this was going to go kind of long. So we're going to run through some of the secondary characters a little bit quicker. We we try our best not to be negative on this podcast. You know, uh, you know these are always movies that we love.
0: Where are you going with this?
1: Uh, well, just off mic, you know, we <laughs> talked about we both kind of feel the same way about kevin pollack mm. not a kevin Pollock hater i've just he's always been someone that i've not found particularly funny and sometimes in movies he kind of just he kind of gets a little hacky i'll um, watch his
0: 10-hour interviews any, but well any that's day the thing the that's the
1: thing the guy is a podcast he's an amazing interview he's yeah. got so many great stories he's a phenomenal storyteller but I think I said earlier, it's just like a little bit of Kevin Pollak goes a long way. And I think he provides the right amount of comedic timing, does what he does best in small portions, and then also offers up just a tiny bit of explanation that the movie needed as to why he doesn't like these military guys and why he doesn't want to get as heavily involved in the case and there's this real moral dilemma and we as an audience kind of are feeling the same way i think that kevin pollock's character is of like these guys are bullies you know they, Mm -hmm. they bullied this guy i don't care if there was a code red i don't care if they're sanctioned by the military and given all this power they bullied a guy and they tortured him and now he's dead and i don't have any sympathy for these guys i don't even like the fact that i'm helping defend these dudes and i don't know it's a real moment and I, th- I think kevin pollack does like a really good job in this movie i would say this um in his brief moment in casino or like my two favorite uh, you know what and as much as i'm not i've never been a huge like usual suspects fan but i do think he delivers some really good comedic timing in that. And again, not a Kevin I just He's always just one of those actors where it's never been like, oh, Kevin Pollock's in this. I better brush out and see it.
0: In the same way that uh, Kevin Pollock's character is used in small doses for being plugged in in exactly the right way, I think the same could be said for a lot of other well-known actors that are in this movie. Because, like we said before, it's littered with famous faces. And I agree, Kevin Pollack um, does an ample job bringing drama, a little dose of humor. But I would say also the same thing could be said for, say, Kiefer Sutherland. I mean, he's made a career out of being a jerk in, in a lot of things. And thankfully, he's, his career has not been completely typecast as that. But I do think a character who is showing his ugly side a lot in this film... Uh, that could get a little tired a little annoying and a little one note I don't think that that happens with Sutherland and I think that that is due to the same thing with Pollock is that we have it in small doses
1: and a little uh, behind the scenes uh, trivia on Kiefer Sutherland yeah Um. apparently there's that scene where he's driving everybody oh, yeah. he's, he's like driving <laughs> that big Hummer and I guess in the scene they have like
0: I mean, you know, homers are pretty wide. They're
1: wide vehicles. Wide. and they're in the scene, they had mm-hmm. actors, like, marching, like, you know, because they're on the base. So Kevin Pollack showed up the next day after Kiefer Sutherland had shot a scene, and they had, like, had to replace him with a different driver, like a stunt driver, because he showed up and someone said, oh, man, did you hear what happened? Like, uh, they told Kevin Pollack, like, yeah, I guess Kiefer Sutherland, like, hit one of the actors when he was driving, you know, doing the scene. And so Kevin Pollack said that, you know, he finally caught up with Tom Cruise and, he was like hey I heard uh, Kiefer Sutherland like hit one of the actors and Tom Cruise is like yeah he hit like 14 people like he just like <laughs> kind of like plowed through these people like he just couldn't drive in a straight line in between the actors so good actor I guess not the greatest uh, stunt driver and this is a movie where just like Kiefer Sutherland an actor who had done many movies where he's like the star and then started going into character work and ensemble pieces same thing for Kevin Bacon." Yeah. And I think Kevin Bacon is the same way. I really like Kevin Bacon, but I think that his best performances is when he wasn't the star of a movie. Uh, right around this time, you know, he was doing that, uh, you know, did JFK, did Sleepers. Uh, don't get me wrong. I still, I mean, Tremors is one of my favorite movies and I think he's perfect as a lead for that movie, but it, that's still kind of an ensemble. A uh, River Wild, another one where he oh, yeah. and plays I a good bad guy. Plays a good bad love guy. Love that movie. But I also find it interesting that, you know, you have a few of these actors like Sutherland and Bacon who were leads in movies, but they were like, hey, I'll take these smaller roles because we have Tom Cruise and Jack Nicholson and this is going to be like a big hit movie.
0: I see you Kevin Bacon and I raise you um, a very unexpected, great kind of unnerving performance by Christopher Guest, who's been with Rob Reiner and Spinal Tap and The Princess Bride. After seeing just his one scene in this film, I think that there has been a gross miscalculation in his career. The man needed to play a serial killer at some point. I mean, I know he's playing a doctor in this movie, a military doctor, but... There's just something about this performance that is very unsettling to me.
1: <laughs> I, I, I could not agree with you more. I, um, you know, Christopher Guest, he buries himself in roles. I mean, we've, yeah. we've done Waiting for Guffman. He buries himself in uh, Best in Show. I mean, he can transform. Yeah. But again, hadn't seen this movie really. And my first watch of this, I didn't know that was Christopher Guest. The second time I watched I was like, oh my God, that's Christopher Guest. And then I agree with you. It's just like, why has he not played like some sort of villainous like creeper? Because he does, it's (laughs) like he's a doctor that maybe kills his patients on the side. I mean, the way he plays it is so chilling.
0: Oh man. So if anyone out there has any pull somewhere, Christopher Guest, you got to play a killer somewhere along the line, man.
1: And another uh, person who plays kind of creepy character is jt walsh yeah and here he again plays not it's not really a creepy character but a disturbed character Mm -hmm. and we also have probably the most like traumatizing scene where he uh you know his his really kind of fed up with like covering up for the jack nicholson character and he can't really live with himself that the soldier got killed and so he like kind of helps out tom cruise is like Giving him all this information on the side, but then dresses up in full military garb and then like shoots himself. And they don't show the actual suicide, but they don't have to. Just the lead up, like the you know him like you know making sure everything is all shoes are shined and pins on. Yeah, bothers him enough. You know, it's it's uh, it makes for a compelling scene. And just recently, uh, I showed um breakdown in my backyard for my summer series. Man, I love that
0: movie.
1: Wow. But it was one of his uh, last few movies and just a great, great villain.
0: Yeah. He's an actor that, not his performance, but his characters can be grating to me. But after I watch it, I'm like, man, that was an awesome performance yeah. because, I mean, he's he's doing that. That's how the character is supposed to be.
1: And uh, a blink and you miss it role is Cuba Gooding Jr. shows up for just a moment. And in the same year, uh, James Marshall, who plays one of the cadets who were you know on trial the one who's not really saying a whole lot kind of scared to speak up till the Mm -hmm. very end of the movie him and Cuba Gooding Jr. were in a movie together the same year that this came out that I loved didn't bother watching A Few Good Men but I saw this movie Gladiator in theaters and then (laughs) watched it like 10 times on VHS it's a fighting movie Brian Dennehy's like plays like a evil coach man it's kind of a forgotten movie but early cuba gooding jr and you could tell it was a movie where they were trying to launch james marshall as like a lead yeah. but the movie bombed and i mean the guy still got work don't get me wrong but yeah. uh, if you haven't seen gladiator i highly recommend it i think i haven't seen it in probably like 20 years but i loved the hell out of it when it came out
0: another tiny role you might miss is uh noah wiley he shows up in um at least two three scenes One person who we're kind of saving till last, even though he is... An incredibly important part of the movie is Wolfgang Bodison, who is playing the kind of like lead of the two Marines with James Marshall um, who are on trial. This was his acting debut. And it is so wild to me because I almost thought, man, I, this guy isn't familiar. I wonder if they like just got a guy straight out of the military because he's really like, I believe it.
1: Well, that's what I thought too because I, really? I wouldn't... Yeah, I thought he was straight out of the military because... Yeah. I don't think his performance is particularly good.
0: But he seems like a frickin'. Marine. But yeah, Marine. he
1: seems like, he seems like, <laughs> he you know, they were legit. like, give this Marine some lines when he's doing yeah. the Marine <laughs> stuff. But when he has to get a little dramatic, it, you know, mm. it's, it's kind of like a very loose performance. It doesn't, again, didn't feel like someone who was like a trained actor. So it wasn't surprising to find out that he wasn't an actor. I was super surprised to find out that uh, they hadn't cast this person. And Rob Reiner was like, Man, we need someone who's like this, like an imposing, dominant character, and he couldn't find the right person. He, you know, was like going through casting, and then I guess one day he was just like, you know, someone like uh, someone like Wolfgang. Wolfgang was uh, Rob Reiner's assistant at the time, and Rob Reiner approached him. He's like, "Hey, have you ever thought about acting?" And Wolfgang was like, "No, not really." And he was like, "Well, you know, can you sit down with me?" And like they worked this out, and he asked him if he'd be willing to try it, and uh, sure enough ends up getting like going toe-to-toe with Tom Cruise and I mean not just has like a few scenes I mean like he's in it for like a large portion of the movie it has quite a few lines yeah. if I had to criticize the movie at all I don't really like his line when he looks at Tom Cruise and at the end oh, at the very end you know end. he earns his respect and he's like there's an officer on deck it's it's the only time the movie gets a little hammy and I think his delivery is it feels hammy, but I
3: don't
0: think that's his fault.
1: Yeah, gonna it's, you know, that. but pretty wild casting story. And uh, you never know. You never know uh, who's going to, you know, say, hey, do you mind putting a sapler down? We need you to act in the scene with Tom Cruise.
0: God, I wish that would have happened to me in college. on yeah. some student film, that would have been pretty cool.
1: Instead, they're like, can you put this burlap sack over your head? <laughs> we, <laughs> we, need, uh, we need to throw you into this pit of snakes for this horror movie.
0: Do you mind standing over here and what we're going to do is we're going to push you against this wall aggressively. You're just going to be a body double. Thanks.
1: (laughs) So, again, just all around fantastic cast. I mean, I know like ensemble cast is not a genre, but you give me a, a big ensemble cast, especially with a bunch of great names. You really can't go wrong. And this movie really was a smash success. Cost around 40 million to make. And we know a lot of that money was spent on Cruz and Nicholson, <laughs> but it makes uh, 243 million in 1992, which you know I know that doesn't sound like a ton of money because like there's so many movies now that make like a billion dollars or whatever, but that was probably like half a billion dollars in today's money. Really big uh, hit with older people, and again, I think it's a movie that just would come out in theaters today. You know, this is a movie that would you know settle in on. HBO or it'd be like a Netflix movie. I would love to see a movie like this in theaters,
0: or be developed into yeah. like some type of mini series, yeah, type of thing.
1: Which you know, I think this yeah, I, would have, yeah, this definitely would have been like yeah. a five part mini series sure. if it came out now on Netflix. For
0: sure. There was one thing that was interesting to note, and I guess this was probably deliberate. Was Columbia release this movie at the same time as Nicholson's other movie Hoffa? I guess just to Build the hype maybe around, oh, there's two Nicholson movies out in the theater. Which one are you going to go see? Um, But surely pissed off Jack Nicholson that both of his movies were kind of competing in the box office at the same time.
1: I saw Hoffa that weirdly, I didn't see a few few good men, but I saw Hoffa because I liked JFK when I was younger. And Mm -hmm. then it was sort of like the sequel.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: So before we jump into um, our picks of the week. Let's uh, transition back into our true crime pod again, Lindsay, so you can finish up your story (laughs) about the real life uh, crime that happened that A Few Good Men was based on.
0: Okay. Before I get to the unsettling details of the rest of this story, there is one little tidbit that I feel is of some importance to know that when A Few Good Men opened on Broadway, the people that were involved in the real life situation were not aware of it. And David Cox, who I talked about in the beginning, um, was one of those. And after finding out, he was super upset. He resumed his military career after the court-martial. There were some details changed, um, you know, in A Few Good Men. He thought that it was being made just for people to profit off of this terrible incident. He thought that it made him look really bad and that it was a violation of his privacy. And I guess I can't find any confirmation of this, but there was a rumor that Sorkin got his hands or someone involved in A Few Good Men got their hands on the official court-martial transcripts. I'm not uh, positive about that, so no one sue me for saying that, but that was the rumor. So there was a $10 million lawsuit that was lodged against Castle Rock Entertainment for damages. There were five other Marines involved in that lawsuit. David Cox was not part of it initially, but it didn't stop him from talking about his dismay over the situation, and he was not quiet about it. So in January of 94, Cox disappears from his home. His girlfriend comes home and finds things that are out of place in their house, and she can't find him. She's calling friends and family, and it's just not like him to not be around. And, you know, this is obviously something is wrong. Her partner is no longer there. There are no leads, tips. He just disappears. In April of '94, Cox's body turns up in the woods, a half a mile from the nearest road. His body's located between two hunting ranges, and police you know, thought, well, whoever killed him obviously did it there so no one would hear the gunshots. The medical examiner noted that Cox was shot execution style in the back of the neck and three more shots to the torso. This is a really sick detail that, I mean, I can't help but feel like this was directly related to him talking about this incident, um, that he was found wearing his military-issued camouflage field jacket his Marine Corps scout sniper hoodie and white sneakers and jeans which at the time there was snow on the ground and he just it's not the appropriate like shoes he would have been wearing it's not like he was just out for a walk in the woods wearing this and his family also said that he never brought out any of his military garb anything like that there's a lot of speculation around this case it was never solved at least in what I've been able to find. I know that the case was reopened a couple years ago. People thought that it was either obviously military-related, or another curious thing was that Cox had talked to his brother about, uh, he worked for UPS at the time, and knew that there were people that he worked with that were stealing packages, and he was squawking about that too. So who knows what, I mean, someone knows what happened to David Cox, but kind of a wild end to this story. I mean, A Few Good Men's already out. The movie's done. This is two years after the fact. But that's what really happened. And completely unexpected ending to that man's life.
1: Just totally insane.
0: Yeah. I mean, just I I can't help but feel either someone was like, we're going to stage it to look like it's something related right. to the military, or it straight up was, which I'm more inclined to kind of believe that one.
1: More conspiracies going on.
0: Right? I don't know. This is like this whole uh, ending to the story and what happens in A Few Good Men is like really not uh, making the military look so great. So maybe David Cox talking about the whole thing, you know, he made a difference in talking about it and making people uh, not completely trust the military. Kind of wild.
1: Well, we're going to return back to our movie (laughs) podcast. But thank (laughs) you for giving the uh, details on the uh, rest of the story
0: join us next time when Justin and I um, on our Dateline inspired podcast uh, we'll talk about finding women in wells like in the ring and uh, the ending of a few good men yeah
1: (laughs) it was a nice little detour yeah well let's move on to our picks of the week Lindsay I want to hear about the last detail
0: with the military and Jack Nicholson being the connection to a few good men this film was just too good to pass up the last detail really hit me in such an unexpected way on the surface, it's the simplest of stories. Two seasoned Navy men are saddled with the assignment of escorting a quiet sailor across the country to begin his eight-year prison sentence. Really, The Last Detail is a road trip movie. A very male road trip movie, but not overly machismo-laden, which is one aspect that surprised me. Starring Nicholson looking like a pinup up boy from 1973, Otis Young, Randy Quaid, this movie had me glued to it. In the best 70s story-driven style, I kept waiting for some big thing, some event to happen, some conflict. But the key to this movie is subtlety. 30 minutes in, and I'm thinking, could this movie really just be about two Navy guys who feel bad for this meek, quiet kid who's old enough to defend his country but not old enough to drink, who didn't successfully steal 40 bucks from a charity box, and now gets dishonorably discharged and sentenced to eight years in prison? Really? This is the movie? And I don't mean that in a flippant way, but this is really about these guys becoming friends with this guy they're taking to jail. And they know that this meek guy is going to get the crap kicked out of him for the next eight years of his life. So they're kind of going to do this bucket list checkoff thing on this road trip for the next couple days just to get this guy some life experiences. Yeah, this is what this movie's about through and through. There's barely any machismo we're fronting from the beginning. Nicholson plays Budusky, first class signalman who's partnered with Otis Young playing Mule, a first class gunner mate. Randy Quaid is playing a young seaman and the man who they're hauling to prison. Once Budusky and Mule have assessed that Meadows got a raw deal, it's apparent that they have sympathy for the kid, so they decide to take their time getting Meadows to his destination. And here's where the unexpected heart of the film is unveiled. In between intentionally missing connecting trains, we get day drunk with these guys. They cause a ruckus with some Marines just because Budusky and Mule take Meadows ice skating. They take a detour to see if Meadows' mom is home. They crash a church and learn about chanting. They pay for the kid to have sex for the first time. And for Christ's sakes, they get Meadows a bracelet for their, quote, Navy of three and find the finest Italian sausages along the way. I mean, this is such an unexpected story. And while we're on this road trip, these guys, all the while, it's looming over them that Meadows' future is going to be a prison cell. It's never an issue or a giant revelation how these men can relate to each other, how they bond. They're not overly vulnerable, but also aren't putting up a front. How they trust and relate to each other allows them to fully live in the moment. While both Mule and Budusky are afraid for this kid to go to prison, they deal with it in different ways. Like Mule, though he cares about Meadows, is more guarded. This ain't no retirement party or farewell. We're taking him to prison. And Budusky, on the other hand, wants Meadows to toughen up, speak up for himself, say what he wants. If his eggs aren't over easy, don't accept him the way that you get him. Send him back. The last detail asks the audience to go along for this ride. There are moments of reflection, sometimes dark, but I'd argue that while one could say this movie is a little depressing, I think it all matters in how you look at it. There's nothing that can change Meadows' future, so how do you deal with the time up until then? I mean, jeez... This could double for a movie about a terminal illness, except this one has a little bit more levity. The writer of The Last Detail served temporary duty as an assistant to a naval guidance counselor, and the two exchanged stories, and that's how this movie was originally born. And it really does feel true to life. Not that I've been in the military, but it does have degree of authenticity to it. And this could also be due to its semi-documentary style, using a lot of natural light, realistic dialogue and situations, and the pacing works hand-in-hand with editing for this film, too. The story flows, both visually and through... The plotline. Scenes are cut together through fades, blending softly into the next frame, so this kind of distorts time for the audience. The story takes place over a week and these guys are really flying by the seat of their pants, and even though there's certainly structure, I kept thinking to myself, there's no way that this movie could be made today. It's structured seamlessness and fluidity that, in the wrong hands, this movie could really drag. Like a lot of character-driven stories, you've got to have solid leads, and Nicholson, Young, and Quaid all pull their weight equally, all three being extremely different characters from one another and come together for this surprisingly emotionally effective movie. Three other faces to watch for are, in a minor role, Carol Kane, playing a sex worker who gets partnered with Quaid, and in two very, very minor speaking roles are Nancy Allen and Gilda Radner, both in their film debuts. I totally lurched forward when I saw their baby faces on screen. The last detail's a journey. We're not beaten over the head with emotionality or by being sentimental. It's a story that just rings true for everyone. This movie is for anyone who's ever enjoyed Hal Ashby's other films, like Harold and Maude or Being There. You would definitely get down with this one. There's an unofficial sequel by Richard Linklater called The Last Flag Standing, which stars Brian Cranston, Lawrence Fishburne, and Steve Carell that I really need to check out. It's not like this movie ends begging for a sequel, but more like you've spent so much time with these guys that I actually want to know what happened to them.
1: I've heard of that Linklater movie. I never knew that that was an unofficial sequel. I uh, have never seen that, but I've always wanted to.
0: Yeah. Something tells me he would be a perfect person to continue on that yeah, story. Yeah,
1: his style of filmmaking. Yeah. Going nice and loose.
0: Yeah. All right, Justin,
1: it's your turn. Tell me about your pick of the week. So my pick was The Last Samurai, an epic tale produced, co-written, and directed by Edward Zwick, who did a few other epic movies, uh, Glory and Legends of the Fall. And both of those movies very visually stunning, this movie is the same and also has a lot of the similar themes that were in those movies. A lot about honor, a lot about the changing world of smaller forces trying to fight bigger forces. In this movie, Tom Cruise plays a very uh, downtrodden captain who has fought in the American Indian War. Um, he was very traumatized from that. We learned later in the movie that he witnessed his uh, army killing women and children, and he's not forgiven them for that. He's very, very uh, traumatized, um, possibly alcoholic, and he gets hired to go to Japan to train a military because the Western world is coming into Japan and from what I understand, this movie did get criticized heavily for its historical portrayals. I guess, in historically, this movie's based on a lot of real things, but um, it was mainly like uh, European influences, but in the movie, they changed it to American influences. But there's a Japanese businessman who sees the industry happening in America, and he wants to, you know they've got the railroad happening. The movie starts in 1876, so we kind of start seeing the dawn of the new world. Tom Cruise is brought in. They're going to pay him basically to train a new military that's more along the lines of an American military where they have guns training them to shoot because the Japanese way of life, even in fighting, was samurais and everybody used swords and knives. They weren't using guns. And so I think you could look at this movie several ways. You could look at it as like how guns kind of change society, change culture, there's a lot of like big picture ideas in this movie, but you never really feel like it's like bashing you over the head. It doesn't feel heavy handed. And that's what I like about it. There's this movie that runs about two and a half hours. And there are times where it's like, it takes its time. It's kind of meditative, but it tells a really good story. Tom Cruise, uh, again, goes in, he's going to train this military, but he comes to find out that they don't really know anything. They don't know anything about fighting. And there's a new emperor and they want to get this military ready to fight the samurai rebellion, who is, again, trying to hold the old ways of Japan, the old ways of the culture. And they go, he trains them, they go to fight, some of the samurais are killed because these this new military has guns. But Tom Cruise happens to kill one of the main samurai leaders, but he's captured. He's taken back to their village, and at first he's kind of treated like crap. Half of the samurais want him dead; they just want to go ahead and kill him. But the the leader played by Ken Watanabe uh, wants to learn. From this white man, he wants to learn about his enemy, as he says, and so he keeps him alive. And he actually has a uh, Tom Cruise staying with a woman whose husband is the one that he killed. She has two children, and she's nursing him back to health because he's pretty battered from the battle. But as he heals, he starts learning the way the samurai, he comes to respect them. They come to respect him. And this section of the movie is like very slow moving, but I think it's very interesting. And you start learning more about um, the way uh, Western influences bulldozed over some of the culture in other countries. As time progresses, Tom Cruise starts siding more with the samurai. And eventually there's some assassins that come to kill the the leader of the samurai and Tom Cruise helps the fight against these uh, assassins and helps kill them, and so he becomes more trusted within the samurai, and eventually is going to fight for them. And then there's this big gigantic battle scene that uh, I won't spoil if you haven't seen the movie. But as far as like war type movies go, I would categorize this as a war type movie because there are some very extreme and bloody battle sequences but they're also like really moving and there's a particular moment in the movie that uh is very very emotional and I think is like the main idea of what this movie is about and that's again it's the influence of like western culture and guns um kind of like corrupting a culture very very well made very beautifully shot film beautiful score uh, the acting is really good I know Tom Cruise overdoes it sometimes and I feel like this is a movie where he's like Pretty subdued. I mean, even the we've talked about in this episode, him playing drunk, he does play a little drunk in the beginning of this movie, but it's more of like an angry drunk and does it pretty well. I think, you know, as far as like Tom Cruise playing a, a drunk character. It doesn't get as Hollywood as I thought that it would. Um, there are scenes where Tom Cruise is speaking Japanese and a lot of the movie is in Japanese with subtitles. The leader of the samurai played by Ken Watanabe, he had learned English, so it makes sense when he's talking English to Tom Cruise. But when Tom Cruise isn't there and he's speaking to the other samurais, they speak Japanese, which is something that a Hollywood movie doesn't do all the time. You know, They'll just have everybody speaking English even if they're not around someone who is not English speaking. So I appreciated that about the movie and I didn't learn as much about the samurai cultures. I hope that I would from this movie, but you do learn a little bit and it's not, you know, this movie isn't like a big history lesson, but it is, uh, it did make me want to go find out what really did happen during that time. And so it is a good, if you're interested in history and interested in wars, this is like a, a really great movie to look at. So, Last Samurai, totally worth checking out, and totally, uh, I think, one of the better Tom Cruise performances, in my opinion.
0: From the trailer that I remember, this seemed like such um, an epic movie to watch on a big screen. It did look really beautiful. I still haven't seen it, but um, I know it's streaming for free right now on Tubi, and I'm looking forward to checking it out
1: yeah i highly recommend it
0: tom cruise he looks pretty good with facial hair
1: yeah you know he's got facial hair and he's got the i always thought that he looked pretty good with the long hair long hair. he's like he, kind of grown out
0: yeah he looks great that yeah. way yeah
1: <laughs> well those are our picks of the week the last samurai and the last detail hmm, whoa two last movies not planned no wasn't no. well here's your murray moment <laughs>
3: because i rarely wear underwear and when i do
2: it's usually something unusual i think i need a root canal i'm sure i need a long slow
1: root canal
3: you're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again oh what does that old queen know she didn't even show okay this is so is this hand shot the flowing robes grace, all striking (sighs) that was fun
0: After almost 100 episodes, this Murray moment is inspired by internet know-it-alls, the um-actuallys of the world out there. We all know him in our private lives and virtually. And in regards to Rob Reiner, the director of A Few Good Men, I can't tell you how dang tired I am of seeing dingbats on the internet taken up for Reiner and saying that he invented the original SNL lounge lizard, the character that Billy totally made popular during his run on the show. And let me prove it here. First off, Yes. Reiner did do a cold open sketch the very first season of SNL, third episode. He comes out on stage dressed up as a typical lounge singer type guy. And I'm going to make a bold statement here. The sketch wasn't funny. SNL writers knew it at the time, and even Lauren Michaels tried to talk Reiner out of it. But Reiner had way more pull than Michaels at the time, and he could do whatever he wanted. It's really nothing against Rob Reiner. The sketch was what it was. I mean, I did laugh pretty hard when he deep-throated the microphone, but that's about it. Reiner did this in 75, and if we're being technical here, lounge singers were a giant thing in the 60s and 70s, ripe for anyone to parody. And just throwing this out there, too, that Bill used to check out a well-known Chicago regular, a lounge singer named Jimmy Damon, at the long-gone Cousins Club in Chicago back when Billy was at Second City. When Damon got wind that Billy was parodying him, he told the Chicago Tribune many years later, I wasn't upset, I just, you know, wish he would have sent me a check. Okay, okay. Okay. That one is a well-explored rumor. Let's take it a step further. Something inspired by Damon, but also Billy's appreciation for sleazy lounge singer types. In those early Second City stage days, Bill was part of an informal group called the Sammy Davis Club, Sammy Davis being one of the pinnacle of performers of the lounge singer style. Bill, his brother and Second City player Brian, future David Letterman wingman, among many, many other things, Paul Schaefer and National Lampoon producer Bob Tischler would all gather to watch Sammy Davis's syndicated show because they got a kick out of how slimy Davis's act could be. Billy's future SNL character, Nick the Lounge Singer, began at Second City, inspired by so many others that were actually making their living at this. And I mean, SNL is a parody sketch comedy show. It pokes fun at real life trends and events, things that usually are already in existence. And while at SNL, Billy, Danny Aykroyd, Paul Schaefer, writers Marilyn Miller, and Tom Davis all wrote the sketches for Nick the Lounge Singer. Bill chose the songs, and together he and Schaefer always worked through the music, something that they would collaborate on for many, many years to come. Whether Nick would be entertaining in an army base, a ski lodge, a train lounge, Las Vegas, an airport lounge, it didn't matter. His game was always on point, silly as it was, always playing the audience made up of the SNL cast members at the time, and thus making it one of the most lusted-after recurring sketches on the show. But Schaefer did add one important factor to Bill's ever-evolving lounge singer act. The idea for Nick the Lounge Singer, he said, was an outgrowth of a character he'd done called Shower Mike which was a guy singing in lounge style in the shower. And personally, even though there are only two shower mic sketches in SNL's history, they were the foundation of Nick's soon-to-be 13 or so episodes, I kind of love them even more because of the absolute ridiculousness of the situation. Here's a guy singing in a comical confrontation with his wife Judy about her cheating on him. And then sketches like these would garner Murray and the SNL writing staff an Emmy that year for Best Writing in a Variety Series. Quick aside, the cheating wife, Judy, played by Gilda Radner, was rumored to have been named after John Belushi's wife, Judy, at the time, who also, as the story goes, once gave Bill a soap in the shape of a microphone as a gift. And years after receiving it, Bill said, I took off with it and wrote the singer sketch. Obviously, Shower Mike came after Reiner, but still, Bill took the idea he'd been inspired by back in those days in Chicago and brought it to the stage and eventually SNL. So if you ever come across... Nosy know-it-alls pretending that Rob Reiner's flatlining sketch invented the SNL Lounge act. Remember me, in this Murray moment, I'm actually all over the place and explaining where and exactly how Billy's Nick the Lounge Singer sketch came to be and how he made it his own. I don't know why the name Shower Mike is so funny. To me. <laughs> Shower Mike is pretty good. It's also something that um you don't really see on SNL too much is like them with like shirts off and yeah. like pretending like they're naked and it's very intimate. It's like the camera is in the shower with them. So it's, um, it's very the and squeezing like Buck Henry. Who's the, the cheat and the guy who Gilda's cheating on bill with in, it's like three people in a shower. It's pretty ridiculous, but worthwhile to yeah. check out.
1: Shower, Mike shower, Mike. <laughs> well, thank you for that Murray moment. Of course. Well, before we close this thing out, I just wanted to say, uh, you know, usually when we do these episodes, I'm like so well versed on the director or the writer and I've seen most of their movies. And I feel like I've kind of for how well regarded Aaron Sorkin is, I feel like I've kind of slept on his work. So I really need to dig into some Aaron Sorkin. I've never seen The West Wing. I've never seen Newsroom. I've never seen Sports Night and I haven't seen several of the movies. He went from a writer to writer-director, and I still haven't seen um, Trial of the Chicago 7. I haven't seen Molly's Game, which I've heard is really, really good. Um, I did see Being the Ricardos, which I did enjoy. I yeah, I like that. Um, but yeah, I need to be more well-versed on Aaron Sorkin, so. This was a good podcast episode for me to sort of tap into some stuff that I haven't checked out instead of, you know, continuing to re-watch a lot of the <laughs> movies that I love, but... Every now and then, this podcast, I like with our picks of the week. A lot of times, I'll go to movies that I haven't seen before.
0: I'm guilty of that too, rewatching the same yeah. ones because you love them,
1: and it's a safe bet.
0: You know, um, a good safe bet is uh, another Rob Reiner directed and Aaron Sorkin written film, The American President.
1: Oh yeah, man, I haven't seen that in a long time.
0: That one's good and charming and like solid leads with Michael Douglas. And Your Internet boy Bening. Michael Douglas. You know, I love a Michael Douglas movie.
1: Well, that'll be our uh, homework after this episode to check out some more Sorkin. And uh, that should wrap things up for A Few Good Men. Um, thank you so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. We are coming up on a uh, big number here, our 100th episode.
0: My God, we're it was finally really, here. Yeah, it's finally <laughs> here.
1: It's taken forever. Yeah. Um, you'd think that we'd have more episodes for you know how long we've been I mean, doing this. But we take our time. We make sure we...
0: I think if we didn't have to have regular jobs, yeah, that's we true. would.
1: That's true. Uh, and it was it was hard trying to figure out what we were going to do for our 100th episode. I feel like 80s movies, are, that's how, what kind of kicked off this whole thing. So mm-hmm. we wanted to go back to a really well-known 80s movie that's has a lot of acclaim that we love, that I've seen so many times, and that's uh, John McTiernan's Die Hard and we gave John McTiernan a lot of love early, early on when we started this podcast with The Predator. So I'm excited to talk about Die Hard. Yeah. You know, some people do consider it a Christmas movie. A lot really there's a lot of debate over is it a Christmas movie, isn't it a Christmas movie? A lot of people get like really pissed off just hearing about it. So we'll get into that.
0: It's next as episode. much of a Christmas movie as Lethal Weapon is. Yeah, you know.
1: But it'll be December. We should we should do something yeah. Christmas related. Yeah. We love themes around here. Yeah, we do. So, if you haven't already, please do visit us on social media. Give us a follow. Um, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Instagram. Uh, we also have a YouTube channel where we have all of our old episodes that you can go check out, all 99 of them in line, archived.
0: We've got some old parody videos on there too. I wish we had time to do more yeah. of those,
1: man. Maybe in 2023.
0: Yeah, goals. We'll make that happen. Goals. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So until next time, I'm Justin Johnson.
0: And I'm Lindsay Reaper.
1: Thanks so much for listening. Thank you
0: guys.